0: Here on Just Energy, we explore what energy and justice is, its racial and social dimensions, and how to make future energy policymaking more inclusive by design. Because it's never just about energy, it's about people. On Just Energy so far, we have focused primarily on energy justice challenges in the U.S. context, although these themes, of course, are prevalent in every country around the world. On today's podcast, we will transcend country boundaries and discuss the ways in which decarbonization efforts in one country can affect socioeconomic and environmental conditions in another country. Here to chat with us about this is Dr. Benjamin Sovakul, who is a professor of energy policy at the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex Business School in the United Kingdom, where he also serves as the director of the Sussex Energy Group. And today I was lucky enough to catch up with Benjamin while he was walking, not driving a car, to his energy policy laboratory at the University of Sussex. Among just a few of his accomplishments, he has secured over $28 million in research grants, is a lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's sixth assessment report, is the founder and editor-in-chief of the Energy Research and Social Science Journal, and has roughly 39,000 citations to his research. Uh, before we welcome Benjamin, however, let me also introduce our co host today. Manahil Qasim is an MPA student at the O'Neill School, concentrating in energy and sustainable development. She's a Fulbright scholar from Pakistan with an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering, and she currently works as a graduate intern at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Colorado. Welcome to Just Energy, Manahil, and thanks for being my co host today.
1: Thank you, Sanya.
0: Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Where, where in Pakistan are you from? So I'm from Lahore. Lahore. Excellent. And tell us uh, a little bit about Lahore and your, your favorite thing about it.
1: Um, well, there's a saying in the Punjabi language, which is a le- local uh, language, which loosely translates to, if you've not seen Lahore yet, you've not been born yet. Oh, I love so, that. <laughs> it's a very, v- <laughs> it's a very vibrant city. Um, and uh, it's got um, very hospitable people, the food, the culture. It's an amazing place to be. And the, it's a very old city, so its history dates back to, I guess, about the first century AD, perhaps. So it's literally the cultural capital of Fox, and I love it. That
0: is wonderful. And so as an O'Neill School student, uh, you're, you're actually finishing your degree soon. But tell us something that is your, your favorite thing or your favorite experience about the O'Neill School so far.
1: Well, I could write a book on this literally, but uh, just to pick one thing amongst many things is how the faculty and the students are able to connect deeply complex and seemingly disparate topics to find solutions to really pressing problems, Um, which is probably because of the fact that the school values and nurtures diversity of thought and diversity of disciplines. So you will find in the classroom, people who are interested in healthcare, for example, discussing how issues with, let's say, the energy infrastructure can unlock the potential of improving people's lives. And it's just amazing. So that's my favorite thing.
0: Ah, uh, that's, that's really fabulous. And on the topic of diversity of thought and diversity of discipline, we are just so honored to have Benjamin Sobik will join us today. Uh, so, Minahil, uh, please join me in welcoming Benjamin. Benjamin, how are you?
2: Good. I I feel very welcome, although I have to confess I have not been born yet
0: because I have not been to (laughs) 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 Lahore. You have some travels in front of you, I believe.
2: (laughs) That is true. And I feel very guilty about those. I think a lot of us, maybe even including yourself, Sonia, justify a lot of our travel on the grounds that it's doing more good than harm. That's right. Uh, But, you know, all these things like these COP meetings and IPCC meetings do entail a lot of embodied emissions. So I think that's one of the guilty cognitive dissonances that we all have as scholars. But anyway, I have not yet been to Lahore. You are
1: correct. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a wonderful place and I do encourage you to travel whenever you can.
0: (laughs) Well, so Benjamin, on this podcast, we are exploring uh, the meaning and the underpinnings of energy justice. How, when you talk to various audiences, do you typically define energy justice?
2: Yeah, energy justice is intended to be a conceptual approach or framework that brings four different things into focus at the same time. One of these is very much already evident in a lot of literature. It's the costs of energy, the hazards, the externalities, the disbenefits, the disamenities, air pollution, climate change, human rights abuses, resource curses, all of those things fall within the first quadrant of what energy justice looks at. But it's not just about the costs. So the second thing it's about is the benefits. Who owns our new clean energy systems, who reaps the benefits of decarbonization, who breathes the cleaner air, who's benefiting from electric mobility, who's eating healthier foods and having longer, healthier lives. So it's also about fairness or equality of access to all of the modern amenities that energy provides. And when you look at that frame, you start to see things like global energy poverty or fuel poverty as very pressing concerns. Speaking of South Asia, you know, per capita energy use in South Asia is still less than sub-Saharan Africa you have hundreds of millions of women in extreme energy poverty they don't have access to the same energy or cooking devices that we have the third thing um, and there is by the way a lot of justice research that only focuses on kind of benefits and costs but what i like about energy justice is it goes uh, further and says the third area is governance and procedures and so it's things like due process policy making permitting licensing are communities consulted? Is it genuine consultation? Are they informed? Do they give consent? And if they do give consent, um, what happens if there's disagreement? How do you arbitrate conflicts? You know, How do you ensure representative decision-making processes? And then the final theme is a kind of special placeholder for vulnerable groups, uh, what we've called recognition. And this is drawn from Nancy Fraser's work about the injustice of misrecognition. We kind of treat it as a kind of notion that issues of costs, benefits, and procedures um, can affect people in very different ways. And when you have highly vulnerable groups that have very low capacity, so high resilience or low resilience and high exposure, um, maybe they don't deserve equal treatment. Maybe they deserve special treatment. So like indigenous groups, uh, single mothers, you know, the homeless, the disabled, they don't deserve equal consideration. They deserve extra special consideration because they've already been marginalized. And so recognition justice kind of ties those themes so that we don't lose sight of the vulnerable and the dispossessed as we talk about costs and benefits and procedures.
0: I really appreciate such a comprehensive definition. That's that's so helpful. So uh, Benjamin, tell us what led you into this field of energy justice.
2: I think what, what led me to it are, again, four very <laughs> different goals, but I'll, I'll give shorter answers. The first is that it's a very good analytical tool that reminds people, especially technical scientists, that energy is about social things. So it's that energy isn't about techno-economic things only, it's also about ethics and morality. The second benefit is it's a holistic justice framework. It's not a framework that is only about distribution or only about recognition. The third thing is we really wanted it to help inform decision-making. So this is there for non-academic people. Like when you're thinking about what should I do, as a consumer, as an investor, as a student, as someone who is thinking about a job. We wanted it to be a discursive tool. And this is dangerous because, you know, rhetoric serves purposes that aren't always in attune tune with justice uh, goals. But if you start to frame it in terms of justice, people tend to be much more committed to it. So I guess it's a more effective, discursive tool to help us uh, communicate our messages to the public.
0: I'm thinking that you haven't heard the law of three. Have you heard of the law of three? Where the, <laughs> the idea is that if you give three points that everybody will always remember it. <laughs> and I love it. I think that you're, you're adopting the law of four. <laughs> and I'm, I'm particularly um, intrigued by your, your four ideas. Yeah,
2: you know, to be to be totally fair, Sonia, yeah. uh, it started off as three and three. <laughs> yeah. so it's just that we didn't initially include recognition justice. That was kind of, we were influenced by Nancy Fraser and Kirsten Jenkins. And also, we didn't really talk about the discursive frame until people started to critique us for deploying justice to our own ends. So, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I, the rule of three is good. It was initially there in our early work. It's just been the rule of four. And maybe in a few years, it'll be the rule of five or something.
0: I think you're right, I and mean, we need to be nimble as as scholars, right, to be able to to add new elements to our conceptual frameworks. Benjamin, can you also tell us a little bit about your your personal and professional path? What led you specifically to focus on energy justice in your work?
2: It was there a lot, so I mean, I did my PhD fairly close to you all in Virginia, at Virginia Tech. And I was looking at a large grant from the National Science Foundation, uh, trying to look at distributed generation and kind of the benefits and the barriers to things like distributed solar or wind farms around communities. Even in that early work, I didn't call it justice back then. It was more talking about equity, fairness, human rights. Um, And I think that thinking mostly kind of coalesced really. When I got to work with Michael Dworkin, who's at Vermont Law School, I have to really credit him. He's the first, he hired me. Back then, my work was framed around energy security, which included equity and fairness. But, 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 uh, Michael put the word justice in front of it. So we created the Energy Security and Justice Program at Vermont Law School. And I have to say, it was his vision that led us to put justice in the title. And since then, I've never looked back, I guess.
1: That is a wonderful story. Um, And I guess that um, what essentially happened was that you kind of in the process humanized the topic of energy. And so you kind of coalesced energy with justice. And so um, what I wanted to ask you, Benjamin, is what are the juicy some of the juicy questions and challenges that are you that you currently are working to address in the field of energy justice?
2: Very good question. We we had a whole paper <laughs> on new frontiers for energy justice, and Sonia, it was six new frontiers. But I'm just, I'm going to actually undercut, I'm just going to talk about two. The first one that we mentioned is the inclusion of non-Western and non-anthropogenic theories. So too much energy justice work still believes in humans, right, benefiting humans, and still relies on people like Rawls, or Kant, or utilitarianism, or Nozick, and others. Uh, very rarely do you see, you know, global South authors or theories of Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, Ubuntu in South Africa, indigenous perspectives of the Americas. So I really think conceptually we should fight colonialist approaches and global North and West approaches. The other area that I think is really interesting and very, very tricky is intersectional approaches. And So a lot of work, even in energy justice, still focuses on gender or race, or income, or class. And these are really important things. It's very, very hard to actually look at how they intersect because our identities are all of those things and more.
1: So I'm going to segue into a very relevant topic that you work on, which is um, the decarbonization divide. And it's a particularly compelling and a very, um, very pressing problem as a concept and as a general um, frame of reference as we just spoke. So can you talk to us about this divide and what has caused it and how does it manifest in everyday life? You gave one example, but on a more policy level um, analysis, how does it work?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you liked that article. Um, Well, so there we have, it's a collection of articles and the two article, the two main articles, their titles are actually attributed to connections and other intellectual debates. So the first one is called Decarbonization and Its Discontents, That's the first paper. And that's meant kind of to go to this work in the 70s and 80s about progress and its discontents. And that work inherently said progress is uneven. Progress disparately benefits some groups. And there are even some losers to progress, which is really, really quirky, right? Because when we think of progress, we think of everyone getting better. The second one, as you said, is the decarbonization divide. And that was really meant to kind of draw from the digital divide. Where there's a divide in the world of like those with access to modern amenities like the internet and netflix and there are also those around the world who have no energy at all and have people sent an email Um, and so that's kind of why you see those titles and so the decarbonization divide is meant to capture an emerging divide between countries that are rapidly promoting decarbonization and benefiting cleaner air better jobs green growth etc and then countries that are being saddled with many of the hidden costs that decarbonization waste, labor supply, uh, unfair geopolitical trade you know, relations, etc. It often maps really closely onto a global south, global north divide, but not always. You can still have these types of divides happen within countries, even within states like Indiana. Um, so that's kind of what we meant. And, and that kind of leads to the second question, which is that the divide forces us to look beyond where a certain technology or policies being used to try to capture uh, other spatial or temporal elements of that technology. By spatial element, I mean impacts that happen well beyond a community, so nations and global trade and kind of, you know, the world climate. And temporally, I mean at other points of what made that technology, so how it's manufactured, what minerals and materials that it used, all the way to the end of life of that product where you have waste, afterlife, recycling, et cetera. so it's, it's, it's a way of really broadening how we look at energy systems, policies, and technologies.
0: Can you give us some examples?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I really like some colleagues in the United States. Noel Healy, um, Jenny Stevens, and Stephanie Malin have a great piece looking at the embodied energy justices with coal. So there an example would be, well, a typical environmental impact assessment would look at a coal-fired power plant. That's where, we, that's where we take our photograph, that's what we you know, protest outside. And there's even people like uh, James Hansen or Gus Speth who've been arrested outside of coal-fired power plants opposing coal, fair enough, right? And coal-fired power plants are where coal's combusted, so they're where large emissions occur. But in focusing only on the power plant, Noel Healy and others were really indicating that you're missing whole other spectrums of impacts all the way downstream at coal mines, uh, coal transportation, barges, rail, trucks, and then all the way after coal's combusted, things like fly ash facilities and things like air pollution and acid rain, which are often happening around the world.
0: Yeah, it strikes me that when you think about the entire life cycle of any energy commodity, it's at the extreme tails where we see so much of the decarbonization divide, where we see uh, we see that, for example, on the the early stage mining of um, rare minerals, for example, and on the very late stage of the dealing with the waste from the different energy commodities, such as electronic waste from electric vehicles, for example, um, that this is where we really have some of the the bigger issues. Do you agree with that? I
2: do. I think it's partly because it's more out of sight, out of mind, right, because these are the parts of the supply chains that are most remote from where consumption occurs. I also suspect it also has to do with very intentional ways that we've arranged our global political trading system, right? where China is basically the world's factory, parts of Africa and South Asia are largely its dump, and the rest of us consume in the middle. And we all like that because us in the middle don't have to worry about either of those costs or you know hazards that occur at the, at the severe upstream or downstream. I think that being said, it's not only those two extremes where you see a lot of problems. I think the other one that's quite local is manufacturing. So even solar energy manufacturing in the U.S. still has pollution waste streams. Um, and here's a really interesting fact for you, Sonia. In the United States, most solar energy systems at their end of life, when they create their e-waste, they don't go back to sub-Saharan Africa. Do you know where they go? U.S. prisons. It's prison inmates who are handling the bulk of U.S. e-waste. So there's an example of what you thought was far away is actually happening perhaps even in your city or at least in your county or your state.
0: Well, this touches on a theme that I, I did want to ask you about, and that is uh, you've you've written some recent work that we read in our class that we found really compelling on the victims of low carbon energy transitions. And I think you've already touched on some of these victims, but would you would you mind elaborating a little bit more who who are the victims of this transition, this global transition that we're going through? And uh, how did the situations emerge where they become victims?
2: Yeah, so this, this was the result of a, of a systematic review. So this is nice because it's not just my work. So this was, you know, we covered, there were two unique things about it. It was called an expert led review, where we emailed prominent experts writing about climate and energy justice and we asked them for the best examples they could think of. And what we were we cataloged in all of the studies, we read every single one front to back. And every time there was a victim, that's a, a group of actors who are physically or economically harmed by the transition we cataloged it. And we thought we would have a long list of victims. We were thinking maybe 10 or 15, ends up to be a lot more than that. And we didn't think that the victims would keep being the same. We thought, well, in Africa, it might be farmers. And in America, maybe it's truck drivers, you know? And in sub-Saharan Africa, maybe it's women. Um, And it turns out that actually independent of all that variation, many of the same groups keep losing. And the top two groups who lose, based in more than 75% of the evidence, number one is non human species. <laughs> so, here, my gosh, right? We're taking out, protect the environment, but because we're putting carbon first, we're actually allowing water pollution, land degradation, wildfires, et cetera, et cetera, and are persistently harming other forms of life. And the second biggest group was communities that host the technologies themselves which is crazy because you would think they'd have the ones who benefit the most, but no, they're the ones where bioenergy is creating traffic congestion from the trucks and wind energy is lowering their property values and solar energy maybe, you know, maybe connected to unfair distribution of feed-in tariffs, you know, or people falling off of roofs as they install solar panels um, or pesticide use from biofuel, uh, which, which affects the communities. So I think that was also, we never would have expected that, that, Uh, was number two. And then within the rest of the list are a whole other variety of groups, students, people with disabilities. Uh, We even have prostitutes and alcoholics in the list because they've been impacted in certain ways. Prostitution often arises near hydroelectric facilities. So there's a boom in prostitution, which pimps take advantage of and lowers the price of prostitution, which makes it harder for them to live. Uh, You also have in many, um, both biofuel plantations and large mega projects for energy high rates of alcoholism among foreign construction workers. There's another example of building these things basically basically makes people miserable and drink a lot, Um, as well as some of the coping strategies with artisanal mining, which is at the front end of the supply chain, and the back end, like e-waste scrapyards. Both of those workers, scrapyard workers and miners, drink a lot because they don't have healthcare. That's how they cope with their illness. Um, There are these very interesting connections that didn't happen a lot. Uh, Murder is another one that happened a few times. And the mafia, Came up once as being involved in wind energy supply chains in Italy.
1: So uh, Benjamin, you've given us kind of the underbelly of the uh, energy transition, the greening of the, um, of the energy supply and demand mix. So I'm going to ask you, the picture that you provided for our um, listeners is obviously very dreary and uh, very melancholic, so to speak, but is it possible to make the energy transition just, is it possible to have the greening of the economy in a way that is just?
2: Yes, (laughs) I'm happy to say it is. Before we started asking people about injustices, we articulated in that body of evidence more benefits than injustices. So that's a good sign. It implies that yes, while we have these 120 injustices with the four transitions we looked at, there are 128 co-benefits. And these co-benefits also transcend environmental, social, political, gender issues. And there are lots of of stories of empowerment and improved jobs and cleaner air, more resilient economies and improved health. Improved health is one of the biggest co-benefits, both in terms of frequency and also significance and size uh, in terms of a lot of these adoptions. So that's hopeful. The second response is that I don't think these injustices are reasons to stop the the transition. As in, even though we see them, we didn't tell you in our research the injustice of not doing the transition. So I'm still convinced that if we had done that, if we had talked about like a baseline of here are the injustices with the status quo versus the transitions, status quo has more injustices. So I don't think these are reasons to not do the transitions. They're just reasons to make them more equitable and just. And that leads me to my final answer. The final part of our data collection process involved asking respondents for policy suggestions. And we've published these in two of the papers. And I'm pleased to say that we have 30 to 40 recommendations that are very apt. And actually, I would say as an energy policy scholar, effective. Like if you were to do these things, you would actually mitigate 90% of the injustices. So that's good because it implies these injustices are not um, in, in, inescapable, right? You have very pragmatic policy efforts that could solve them if you just got around with the will to implement
0: them. Yeah. Well, maybe you could, maybe you could speak a little bit more about that. What maybe you could give us some suggestions of a few of those. And I'll just preface this by saying, when we discussed your work in our class uh, and talked about the decarbonization divide and the the victims, I I found that our students were, they felt very overwhelmed and um, paralyzed was actually a word that came up a few times in class. So, So this is, you know, part of an evolving conversation about Our energy systems, our energy markets, uh, justice and equity, and how do we work toward it? Uh, But once we expanded to the global scale and started thinking about some of these cross-country dynamics, uh, and even within country dynamics, as you talked about today, uh, students just, they struggled. In fact, one student said, man, I just finally talked my dad into buying an electric lawnmower. Do I tell him now a little bit about uh, where that e-waste goes or what it took to actually source the, the materials to go into that um, into that battery. So I'm just curious, what are some suggestions that you have for moving forward? How do we overcome feelings of of being overwhelmed and, and paralyzed within this space?
2: Yeah, I think this is the importance of, I guess, nuanced analysis, which is not easy to do, right? In an age of Twitter and also in an age where, I mean, yeah, I'm very happy that your student had his father or mother or their her father or mother buy an electric one, or tell them I support that idea. That even <laughs> though we've documented Abuses right to electrification, I still support that I would get an EV if I had a car. Um, I think I have two specific examples and then I have a broader kind of meta answer. The two specific answers uh, of like policies that could actually be implemented to make transitions more just one of them is is at the front end at the mining sector. Uh, it's just more community benefits with mines, like a lot of these mining conglomerates have really overtaken mining concessions, the kind of labor standards are very, very low, high rates of corruption, high rates of police abuse, high rates of brutality. You even have children who are being killed in these mines because they're sneaking in to steal things like batteries or cobalt late at night, batteries from some of the machinery on the site or just cobalt. Um, So I think that's kind of just, you know, God, it is a highly corporatized, very dispossessive environment that could easily be fixed with adequate community benefit agreements and impact benefit agreements, which already work in the mining sector, places like Australia and Canada. I think the second solution would be one that relates to the other end of the supply chain. It's basically making the manufacturers of all these energy technologies or lawnmowers or cars responsible for their whole life. So when you're done with it, they have to take it back. And that means not only they better handle the e-waste streams because they know how to do it, doesn't go to some landfill or to some person in China who doesn't know how to disassemble it, Uh, They also start to design their supply chains to reuse those materials. They become industrial nutrients into the industrial ecosystem. So you have better cradle-to-cradle design. A really good example here was Nokia. Back in the heyday, when they used to make major phones, had an extended EPR scheme for a phone that was carbon neutral. And they designed the phone so if you were done with it, you sent it back. Every part of the phone was reused into their supply chain for the next generation of phones. Zero waste and zero carbon.
0: That's great. So we want to ask you a few questions that are a little bit more personal if you don't mind just because we're seizing the opportunity to actually have you and it's such a such an honor Um, I'd like to ask you, beginning, about your involvement with the IPCC report. Um, So you're a lead author with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their sixth assessment report that's due out in 2022. And I know that you wear so many different hats in your research. Uh, Which of your hats do you wear when you are participating in um, the author deliberations and writing process?
2: Really, really tricky, this IPCC thing. So the first thing that most people don't realize is that we're all volunteering our time other than some of the scientists who run the secretariats and have to do things like organize the printing of the report and all of the meetings, 98% of the IPCC scientists do not get paid at all. We even have to pay ourselves to go to the meetings. So we actually lose money. The only people who, there's a small stipend available for scholars in the global South to offset some of their transport costs, not even all. So this is really a, a mercy of love, right? To participate. But we are supposed to be independent, Mm -hmm. which means we're not supposed to just promote our research or our side. We're supposed to synthesize the evidence, right? And so that means we're also not even supposed to just present data from our own labs. It's like you synthesize what's around the world. And the final thing, which I don't like, Sonia, is we're supposed to be policy neutral. We are not supposed to recommend policy changes. We're supposed to be apolitical. The term they like to say is policy relevant, but policy neutral. And for someone like me who studies politics and political economy, I'm like, there's no such thing. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Um, (laughs) exactly. But yeah, but that's kind of what makes it unique is that we're all volunteering our time and we're tasked with being independent. uh, We're tasked with being synthetic and we're tasked with being not policy prescriptive.
1: Well, I actually was interested in um, the energy research and social science journal um, that um, you established some time back. Uh, which is obviously um, very different from the IPCC. And I wanted to know um, what led you to establish that journal and has it met your expectations and has it, again, shaped your research along the way?
2: The journal was really a reaction to frustration with disciplinary uh, dogmatism and I think lack of sensitivity in the academy. I don't level that at any institution. I mean, like system-wide, non-appreciation of the social sciences the arts and the humanities and if you actually read the the first issue of erss which is a special issue in the introductory article where i talk about why we launched the journal and there's like 75 research questions gosh sonia that destroys your rule of three it's like the rule of three times 25 yeah by a lot um and i was getting desk rejected or rejected by peer reviewers who said there's no value to this we don't care Mm. you know um and yeah, so eventually it was like, you know what? If there's no journal that wants this sort of interdisciplinary work, I'll make my own. And that actually took a few years as well. And I have to give Elsevier at least some credit. They're not known for being one of the most generous <laughs> open publishers, but they do, as Sonia knows, Elsevier has a kind of monopoly on energy journals. They have like eight of the top 10, you know, are all in that family. So it did make a lot of sense to go with them. And even then there was resistance within Elsevier. In fact, it was a non-energy editor who helped sponsor me because all the energy ones didn't like it. They didn't want an interdisciplinary journal. They thought it would fail, told it was a mistake, you know, and even then I had to get like letters of support. It took another two years to launch the journal. And then we were on probation for the first three years. People didn't think it was going to work. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean, I'm really, really happy we persevered. And I mean, the proof is in the pudding, as they say here in England, but there was no guarantee this journal was ever going to get created. And I guess in a way, it's really good that I was rejected so much <laughs> with these interdisciplinary <laughs> thoughts or else it would have been an energy policy and, and that would have been it. I, I'm reminded, by the way, of, of something Eleanor Ostrom once told me. I had the pleasure of meeting her a few times before she passed away. And she used to say sometimes the more radical and good the idea, the more society will reject it yeah, because they're not yeah. ready for it. And I do think that in some ways, you know, I guess the energy studies community wasn't quite ready for this sort of thinking, even though they needed it.
0: Benjamin, isn't that article that you referenced? Isn't it cited over a thousand times? I think it's incredibly well cited. That seventy-some list. I mean, it it requires going back to you over and over and and refreshing one's memory. I think it's brilliant.
2: Thank you. It's it looks like an article, even though it was the result of like years and years of effort and trying. So I think, yeah, it's it's more than an article in that sense of like it was a living document for many years. Um, But yeah. And what's interesting is that I still think of those 75 questions, maybe 30 or 40 have been really well answered, but there are still another 20 or 30 that no one has really touched. Not that I have a monopoly on research questions, but just like there are still really good questions left unanswered in the space.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: I I just wanted to ask you, nonetheless, another piece of advice that you know, you would give out to someone who's an emerging scholar and uh, anything that you would want to share with the younger uh, generation of today who want to uh, contribute to the field of energy justice, energy research?
2: I think I can give two. Uh, I think the first one would be, don't be afraid to reach out to those in the field that you think are very good or that you admire. That's one of the things that I, that's how I met Eleanor Ostrom. I never met her before. I wrote her an email. You know, and here's here's a Nobel laureate quality scholar who wrote that she took the time to write back. And I'm sure she was getting hundreds of those a week. So I think it's like you'd be surprised. Like you find people that you think are really good at research. They do the type of research that you want or they're successful in whatever criteria you're using, citations, quality of analysis, type of job they have, focus of their research, where they're from in the global south, whatever it is. Don't be afraid to write to these people in the field, because every now and then they will write back to you and even work with you. I mean, I had the benefit. Amory Lovins is another character that Sonia knows. And, you know, I wrote to him as a PhD student and was like, hey, want to do a chapter in a book? And he did, you know, and it's like, imagine if I hadn't done that. Same with Dan Kamen, who's at Berkeley and, you know, lots of others. So it's kind of like a don't be afraid, you know, to reach out to luminaries, for lack of a better term, and to work with them, because I'm a big fan of kind of uh, research by doing learning by doing. And that happens when you engage in those things. The other one, and this is going to irritate people publish. Publish your ideas sooner rather than later. Also, don't be afraid. Don't be a perfectionist. Don't wait, right? We don't have 50 or 30 or 10 or even five years necessarily to save the climate. If your idea can contribute to that body of knowledge, get it out there now. Err on the side of scientific debate and discussion and deliberation. Err on the side of publishing, especially as a student. And you might be surprised, Sonia, one of the things that I did in this maybe I don't recommend as a tip because it made my interviews really difficult for jobs. I decided in grad school for my PhD to try to make every paper I wrote for a class.
0: Me too, yes, yes,
2: brilliant. And that's why if you look on my CV, my first five articles are on things like Karl Popper's philosophy towards cosmology, uh, the ethics of criminalizing scientific misconduct, drug trafficking in North Korea. and a few other really random areas those were all different papers oh i have one on uh discourse and iraqi reconstruction <laughs> so it's like what the heck you know looking back that was kind of none of them were energy related but that's because i set this goal of working with my professors and making sure that if i was going to do a paper gosh why not do a paper
0: well, I give our students the exact same advice, our doctoral students, uh, and even our, our master's students like Manahil, who are so doctoral ready uh, that they should just start in their, their master's time.
1: Well, thank you, Benjamin, for um, those wonderful answers and for having a truly enlightening uh, conversation with us. It was a pleasure listening to you, learning from you, and you've given me some great advice, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Um, Thank you once again for being uh, here with us and sharing your thoughts and experiences.
2: You're very, very welcome.
1: Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Sovacool.
0: Just Energy is produced by Violet Barron and is a collaboration between myself and my public affairs students at Indiana University. In closing, we wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to our region, and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the miami Lenape, Lenape, Botawadmik, and Sa'wanwa people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. We implore the federal government to respect its treaties with indigenous nations, as well as recognize all tribes seeking federal recognition.